Last week, I introduced a brief series of sermons that we're going to be looking at together in which we're exploring how to be family from afar. How are we to do church when we can't be together? And how are we to be an assembly as God intended us to be while we remain unassembled? This is the second of those sermons today. Uh, COVID-19 has forced us apart as a church, and it has paused or changed many of the functions of us as a church, but we recognize that this virus doesn't exempt us from being the church. In many ways, there's a whole lot that has not changed for us as a body of Christ in the midst of all that has changed. The reality and the mission of the body of Christ, it transcends continents, it transcends eras, and it certainly transcends pandemics. God has given us some assignments as a church family. In fact, those assignments are like God-given lighthouses at which we must stare and at which we must incrementally move toward. And we have to keep our eyes on that lighthouse. And even more so when the waves are high and the winds are strong and the fog is thick, such as the time that we are now living in. We have to keep our eyes on those assignments that we've been given by God. Last Sunday, we looked at an example together from Acts chapter 8. The early church, though they were forced apart because of persecution in their case, we saw that they remained an intentional witness for Jesus Christ. They scattered with purpose, and we were challenged to do likewise during our time of scattering today. Today, we want to look at another assignment together, an assignment that we've been given as a church that, again, transcends anything that we're experiencing. How we play it out may change, may be altered, but the assignment itself has not shifted at all. And to look at that, I'm going to invite you to turn, if you have a Bible with you, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, if you have a Bible with you. And we're going to be covering a whole lot of biblical real estate today. But Romans 12 will be our starting point because it's in the first two verses of that chapter that we find really the root of the assignment that I want us to consider. We're going to familiarize ourselves as we begin with this root, the root of this assignment, before eventually looking at some of the fruit it produces that Paul also provides. So really, we're just talking about today root and then its subsequent fruit, neither of which, by the way, are affected or nullified by the coronavirus at all. They all remain the same, no matter what's going on in our world. And as a church, we understand that we are called to produce the fruit that we'll see this morning. This is what we're called to do. But we can't do that effectively at all without first understanding the root from which it grows out of. Now, as you finally arrive to chapter 12, verse 1, you'll notice that this chapter in the book of Romans, it begins with the word, therefore. And it's therefore showing us that what Paul is about to say is coming out of something that he's already said. More specifically, all that he's talked about in Romans 1 through 11. Now, we don't have time to read 11 chapters this morning. So I want to read just a handful of verses, most of which will be very familiar to us. But they kind of encapsulate and they give us an example, a sample of what has been talked about so far in Romans. Romans 3.23 Famously, in some of these verses, many of you can probably quote off the top of your head as I read them. But Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul writes that every human being is guilty. Is guilty before God because every human being falls short of God's standard of perfection. That's what Romans talks about. 
Now, we may say that some of us are better than others, and that may be true. Some of us are just better people than others. That doesn't matter, according to Paul. The standard is not better or decent. None of those are the standard. The standard is perfection, a standard to which very few of us would claim to have achieved. And God says very clearly in Romans 3.23, we've all missed that mark. That's what sin means. We have missed that mark. Now, traveling on to Romans 6.23, a verse that was alluded to earlier in our time together at the table, but Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul continues on to say that the cost of falling short of that standard of perfection that God sets is death. Physical death, certainly, but also spiritual death, separation from a good God for eternity. But Paul goes on to say that that very same God that we've wronged has provided a path toward reconciliation with him. And that's the good news. A path away from the death we deserve and a path toward the life that we don't deserve. And that path is a person. He says explicitly, Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we were to backtrack to Romans chapter 5 verse 8, we read this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so this is love, Paul says, that Christ sent, or that God sent his son, Christ, to die in our stead. And he didn't do so because we started taking steps toward him. He didn't do so because he looked down and saw, oh, they're getting pretty decent. No, it's while we were yet sinners, while we were yet rebels, while we were yet enemies of God, that God took the initiative, sent his son to die for us, to bridge that chasm that our sin has caused. Now, those three verses don't do justice to the wealth of description that is in those first 11 chapters of Romans, but it will serve its purpose for this morning. Basically, this is what the first 11 chapters of Romans is about, that God's gracious provision of salvation to sinful humanity and the blessings and the victory and the freedom and the unity and the power that it brings us. It's all for us because of God's love. Those first 11 chapters are the theology of our justification, that we have been declared righteous, not because we are, but because Christ is, and it's been imputed to our account. Those first 11 chapters talk about the sovereignty of God and the certainty of our final destination as his children based upon the unflappable promises that he has made. It's an incredible, dense 11 chapters of Scripture. And it's with all of that in mind, and because all of that is true, that we come to chapter 12, verse 1, and Paul says, Therefore, therefore, because of all of that, look with me, therefore I urge you, brethren, talking to the church, by the mercies of God, the mercies I just explained in the first 11 chapters, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Because God gave himself to us, Paul says, we must give ourselves back to God. He says we're to be a living sacrifice, meaning it's all of us. Every bit of me I lay on the altar before the Lord. Every facet of who I am, my hopes, my dreams, my, the things I'd rather keep hidden, all of it is his, a living sacrifice. And every moment of every day of every year, it's all his. Give it all to him. Why? Based on the mercies of God that he has poured out upon us, that he just outlined in the first 11 chapters. 
It's a living sacrifice that we willingly give back to him. But he also mentioned it's a holy sacrifice, right? Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which means that we are presenting ourselves separate. That's what holiness means, other, separate, separate from the filth of this world. That we give ourselves, we set ourselves apart for the things that, from the things that defile us. And we lay ourselves upon the altar for God as an act of worship, as unblemished as we possibly can be. When we offer ourselves in this manner, when we come before the Lord, recognizing his incalculable mercies in our lives. And we come before him and said, I'm all yours. Every bit of me, every moment. And I'm going to do everything I can to present myself unblemished before you. When we do this, the text tells us that it's acceptable to God, that it pleases him, that it's an act of worship. It is our spiritual service of worship. Sometimes in the church, we do ourselves a disservice when we talk about worship or we equate worship with just singing or just Sundays or just church. When Paul is expanding the scope, it would seem, to include much more than that. He's saying it's worship when we give ourselves over to the Lord in a way he desires. When we say, God, have your way. Everything that I am, everything that I can do, it's all yours for your glory because of what you've done for me. Look at verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. He continues, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's saying that as we remember the mercies of God in our lives and, and give our lives back to him in worshipful response, as we do that, we also subsequently run away from worldliness and toward godliness, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And these are the two sides that pull against every single one of us. There is worldliness on the one side that, that beckons us and entices us, and then there's godliness. And he's saying, choose one of these. Right? And this is a tug-of-war that we are all involved in. All of us, every single one of us, without exception. The reality is that every single one of us is being transformed. Every one of us is being discipled. Every one of us is being conformed. The question is, into whose image, into what image are we being conformed? Are we being transformed into the image of the creation or into the image of the creator? Are we being conformed into the image of the world out of which we have been rescued or into the image of he who has pulled us out of the world? And we all feel this tension again, this, this tug of war, and it's into this tug and war, this tug of war between worldliness and godliness that Paul shouts in this text, and he reminds us of all that God has done for us, all the mercies he has lavished upon us. And he's saying, relatively speaking, he's asking for very little in return. If you read Romans 1 through 11 and comprehend all that God has done for us, and he says, give me back your life, you would say, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what he has done for me. And I, I think that this is really at the heart of what he says in verse 2 when he says, the renewing of your mind. Let's look at it again. Instead of being conformed to the world, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you become more like God. What does that mean? What does it mean to renew my mind? Obviously, it's a major part of what it means to become more like Christ, more godly, more acceptable to God. What does it mean? Well, I think part of what it means is, is dwelling on the realities of the mercies of God that he mentions in verse 1. That every moment of every day as we wash our minds with the realities 
of Romans 1 through 11 and all that God has done with me. As I walk in this life aware, hyper aware of all the mercies that God has poured out of me, all of a sudden the worldliness becomes a lot less attractive. It's when I forget the mercies of God in my life. It's when I forget the grace of God in my life. It's when I forget all that he's done for me, all that he is doing and all that he will do. It's when I forget that temporarily as it may be that the world all of a sudden entices me and I start losing that tug of war. It says, no, renew your mind every moment. Wash your mind with the mercies of God. Remind yourself of all that God has done for you and the worship he deserves in response. Now, this is the root of our assignment that I wanted to point us to today. See, motivated and empowered by the mercy that you and I have received by the grace of God, we are to voluntarily and continually give our whole lives back to God as an act of worship becoming more like him in the process. This assignment at its very root, these first two verses of Romans 12, this assignment is altogether unaffected by coronavirus, altogether unaffected by quarantine, altogether unaffected by lockdowns. All of it, this remains for each and every single one of us and all of us together as a church. Now, you might ask, really, what does this have to do with the church? I mean, I thought this series was talking about how do we become family when we are apart? What does this have to do exactly with the church family? Well, what does the root produce when it's healthy? That becomes the question we need to answer. What is the fruit that we can look forward to seeing in our lives should we commit to tending to this root? And in the next few chapters, as Paul concludes the book of Romans, he lists a number of different fruit that will be cultivated, that will be seen inevitably and necessarily if we pay attention to this root. And I want to highlight three of them for us this morning. We're going to fly over these at 10,000 feet, and so we won't get into the nitty-gritty details necessarily. But what I want us to see is these fruit and how attractive they are and how necessary they are for body life, and then we'll circle back to the root and understand that we can't have those fruit apart from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. So again, three fruit that Paul highlights here. Fruit number one, serving one another. Serving one another. Look at verse 3 of chapter 12. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Now pause there for a moment. Look at the comparison that Paul's setting up. He's saying, he's saying you can either think highly of yourself or have sound judgment. You cannot have both. You can't have both. You can either think rightly of yourself or think highly of yourself. Those are the two things. And notice how they come spilling out of verses 1 and 2. Again, connected back to the mercies of God. As we understand all that he's done for me, I will start seeing myself, his church, his world, even God himself, rightly, which puts me in my place, which leads to the rest of this section and the fruit of serving one another. Picking up where we left off, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So we see here that humility and clear thinking are byproducts of verses 1 and 2, that root of giving ourselves over to God as sacrifices, holy and living sacrifices to God. When we give ourselves back to the Lord, we quickly understand that we are not islands, 
that we are not individuals. And this is hard for us in a very individualistic culture to really comprehend and live out. But as we understand what God has done for us, we understand he's done it for the rest of my brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And we've been baptized into the body, into one another. And we are not islands left to ourselves. In fact, quite the contrary. As believers, we are inseparably united together. And he goes on to say that not all of us have the same function, and yet we all do have a function, a role that, that if left unplayed, makes us all weaker. We all suffer. A number of years ago, I, I broke my left hand, and being right-handed, I didn't think it would really make much of a difference in my life. That's wrong. That's wrong. You really don't realize how much you use a certain part of the body until you can't use it anymore. In fact, it comes up all the time. It really is the same in the church. We need all hands on deck, so to speak. All hands on deck. We need everyone functioning as we should. And, and if you're a, a member of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel or a member of any other local body of believers and you are not actively serving, your church is weaker. It's weaker if you are not serving because you are a part of the body that is essential for it to be functioning. You are essential to the whole. Now, a follow-up question to that is, well, how do I know how I'm gifted? Right? It says that we're to function according with our gifts. How do I know how I'm gifted so I know how to plug in and serve? And if you keep reading in verses 6, 7, and 8, we see that Paul gives some examples of what some spiritual gifts might be. Now, because... In other parts of the New Testament, other gifts are mentioned. We quickly realize that this list here is not exhaustive. It's a list of examples. Here are some examples of what gifts might be. So that doesn't really help us. We come back to the same question. How do I know how I'm gifted? How I can serve the church? Am I a foot? Am I an eyelash? Am I, what am I that I can serve appropriately? And I want to suggest today, and this may be slightly controversial, I want to suggest today that's just the wrong question. This question of, how am I gifted? I think it's the wrong question to be asking. And not only does it feed our egocentrism, to be honest, we become the center of our own study. I want to discover how God has made me and, and what my giftings are. It can be a danger there. But not only that, but we're also asking a question when we ask that, that the text is not asking. You'll notice here that nowhere does Paul say, find out how you're gifted. He doesn't say that. He just says, you're gifted, now get to work. You're gifted, now get to work. You don't have to figure out how you're gifted. Just start serving. Trust that you are gifted and start serving the body. So I want to suggest this morning that a better question to ask when it comes to spiritual gifts is not how am I gifted that I may serve. It's more where are the needs in the body that need to be met? What is the burden that the Lord has put on me as I look across the church family to which I belong? What are the needs that I see need to be met? Maybe it's in children's ministry, or maybe it's in phone calls. We need to be calling one another more. Maybe it's in facility repair, or technology, or even just in prayer ministry, whatever it may be. If you prayerfully ask the Lord, Lord, show me where the needs are in this church. And then step out in faith, trusting that the Lord will equip you to meet that need. See, when we switch that around, look who gets the glory so much more quickly. If we say, I need to figure out how I'm gifted and then serve in that capacity, it's dangerous to start attributing whatever fruit comes from that service to me, the gifted one. But when I see a need and say, I need to meet that need, I don't know if I'm gifted to do it, but I see a need there. And I'm going to step out in faith and the Lord is going to have to equip me to meet that need. And if he does, guess who gets the glory? It's certainly not me. The Lord had to show up. 
So I want to say that a great, great question to ask about serving one another is not how am I gifted, but where are the needs that I see and how can I step out in faith? And I'll be honest, we have more examples in our church family of people who are doing this than I could count or mention this morning with the time I have. Um, the very live stream that you're watching this on is a direct product of someone seeing a need and stepping out in faith to fill it. So this is the first fruit that Paul mentions. Again, don't lose sight of Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. That's the root. But directly spilling out of that mention of the root is this first fruit. It's this fruit of serving one another. Now the second fruit takes on in chapter 12, verse 9, and it's loving one another. We've seen that we need to serve one another, but we also need to love one another. Now, this is a bigger chunk of scripture we're going to look at now, but you can tell that it's one unit because it opens and closes with the same charge, the same admonition. Look at chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Now turn to chapter 13, verses 8 to 10, which closes this section on loving one another. Verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. See, as Christians, as we continually give ourselves to the Lord as living sacrifices and grow in godliness and away from worldliness, as we do that, we expand our capacity to love in the way God's calling us to love. To love one another, to love our neighbors, but it comes out of that Romans 12, 1 and 2 charge. I want to be clear, we're not talking about, you know, a, a growing feeling of affection or endearment for one another. Oh, I just love them so much. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about loving one another. What we're talking about is intentional action. It's, it's serving with self-sacrifice for the better of another. That is biblical love. And this becomes so clear in this text when we see the verses between the two bookends that I just read. You know, Paul gives example after example of what it looks like to love one another. And you'll notice quickly that they're all actions. Look back to chapter 12, verse 11 and following. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. You notice these actions. These are intentional actions. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's almost overwhelming here, Paul's list of examples of what it means to love one another. It's like he said, love one another. And here's what it looks like. Bang, 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 bang. And it's almost overwhelming. You get, you get, 
this sense of it's impossible. How could I possibly do all of this? Laying down personal preferences for another person. Laying down my conveniences, my comforts, my time, my energy. I'm giving everything that I am so that my brothers and sisters, the people around me, can become better, can become more edified, can be safer, can be more comfortable. I'm giving it all up for the sake of them. You look at this, you say again, how can I do that with any sort of consistency? I can't, I can't do all of this. We would say, yes, you're exactly right. You cannot. You can't, not with any sort of consistency. In fact, if we were able, if we pluck this out of the context of Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we strive to love one another or serve one another without it being rooted in the root, it quickly leads to all sorts of self-righteousness. Look how good I'm loving. I'm a good lover of one another. I'm a good server. You know, and all of a sudden, again, we steal credit that is not due us. But we need to remember that, that this fruit of loving one another, it grows from a very, very specific root. It's as we give our lives to God, as we lay them down before the Lord, because we know all he's done for me, as I lay myself before him and sacrifice all that I am to him, then it's not that big of a deal to turn around and do it horizontally, to do it to other people. Because I've already given everything I am to God. Then all of a sudden, out of that flows this godly loving of one another. You know, of all the examples Paul gives in this section of what it means to love one another, some of them, I mean, I'd stand in line for. It. You know, some of them I can get behind. Hospitality down the line. Yeah, I, can, I like having people over. Pray for one another. You, you bet. Some of them aren't that fun, though, I don't think. Some of them are harder. Some of them, some of the examples that Paul gives here is calling us to love people and in situations that are altogether unlovely, aren't they? Verse 18, for example, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What about when they don't want peace? What about that when they're mean, even within the church? What about when they're backbiters and, and vicious, as much as it depends on you? As an example of loving one of this fruit that grows off this root, be at peace with them. That's tough. Verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Whew, that's a tough one, too. I mean, some of us have been wronged by brothers and sisters in Christ. Horribly wronged. And our knee-jerk reaction is justice. And that is put in us because we were made in the image of God, a God of justice. And sometimes that justice is, I mean, we can justify it all day long. Yeah, but they did this, and I'm going to get back to them. And if I let it be, they'll just do it to someone else. It's up to me to teach them the lesson. To put a stop to this, this fire before it spreads. Well, be careful. He says, don't take revenge. Leave it to the Lord. You know, if we believe that the Lord will hold all to account, then we can leave them to the Lord. He who judges justly, perfectly. Again, it's a tough thing. A tough example that Paul gives us on what it looks like to love one another. I won't read it, but if you go into chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, one of the examples that Paul gives of what it looks like to love one another, this fruit, is submitting to the government. Eh, oh, I don't like that one too much. But man, is that practical for today, isn't it? It doesn't mean that we are steamrolled by the government, that we don't think critically, saying, well, as much as it's appropriate, we are to be good citizens, not because we're just good citizens, but as examples of how we love our neighbor. It should ooze out of us. Why? Remember, because of the mercies of God. Because we remember what God has done for us. Because the Son of God laid down his life. He experienced extreme injustice. He experienced extreme oppression. And he did it for our sake. 
So I turn around and I look horizontally and I say, could I do even just a, a smidgen of what he did for me? I hope so. I hope so. So here we have this example of, of the second fruit. We, have, we are to serve one another. That's fruit number one. And we are to love one another. And that's fruit number two. I want to come to our third and final fruit for this morning. And that is accepting one another. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Paul shifts a little bit. He changes gears and he says, Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now notice here we're dealing with believers, right? We're dealing with someone who's weak in faith, but they have faith. It's a faith, it's just immature. It's, it's immature. And just like our home families, in the church family, it contains a variety of maturity levels in the body of Christ. We've got newborns, we've got bodybuilders, and we've got the rest of us sprinkled in between, right? But a huge spectrum of maturity levels within the church. And Paul is saying here, regardless of maturity, accept one another. Accept one another. And this gets very practical as he continues to write. Paul gives two examples right off the bat of how differing maturity levels can cause tension in the church when there's no acceptance. In verses 2 through 4, he uses an issue of food that's causing tension. Some brothers and sisters believe they can eat this. Others believe they shouldn't, and it's causing tension. The second example he uses in verses 5 through 9 is an issue with the Sabbath, Sabbath observance. Some are saying, we don't need to observe that anymore. Others say, no, we must, and it's causing this tension. Now here, it'd be helpful to remind ourselves that in the first century, much of the church was saved Jewish people. They came out of Judaism and many of whom they were trying to figure out what to do with the Mosaic law now, right? They, what do we do with the, the food customs? And what do we do with the, the Sabbath day? What do we do with all of that? And, and some people in the church, even coming out of Judaism, they understood it as all fulfilled in Christ. And so it's, it's a non-issue. We can eat whatever we want. The days are all set apart for the Lord. None is higher. But others, they were struggling to let go of some of those traditions that they had been raised in and been steeped in. And... And Paul is looking in and he's encouraging them. He's saying, you know, accept the weaker brothers and sisters. Accept them for the stage of faith that they're in. You know, encourage them and, and mature them in the nourishment of the word. But don't let this cause division. Don't let this cause schism. Accept one another. Accept them. We're not dealing with sin here, mind you. This is not sin issues. This is just maturity as seen with situational ethics. How do we handle this situation? Some people in the church will say, we must do this. Others will say, no, we, we should be doing this. And Paul's saying, oh, hold on. We're not dealing with sin. We're dealing with maturity levels. Accept one another. Chapter 14, verse 10. Paul says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? This has been causing major fractures in this church. Why do you do that? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. You can see this is a, really a live and let live command that Paul is giving to the church, to believers. Be gracious with one another as fellow children of the Most High God. 
Remembering that one day we will each stand before Christ and give an account. But I'm not going to give an account for, for someone else. I'm going to stand before God and give an account for me. So as much as I don't like what they're doing with the Sabbath or that they're eating that, I can't believe they're eating that. I'm not going to stand before the Lord and say, could you believe that guy eating that thing? Could you believe that person doing that on the Sabbath? No, he's going to look at me. Say, what did you do? And so Paul says, be careful. Accept one another. I want to emphasize again, this is not a ticket to ignore sin in one another. I think we need to, out of brotherly love, loving one another, call one another to repentance when necessary. When we see, in fact, I think that this needs to go on more in the church today. Where we see sin in a brother or sister in Christ, we go to them not judgmentally in condemnation, because that's not our role, but to go and say, brother, sister, help me understand, I, I see some concerning trends in your life. Can we talk about this? Can we pray together? Am I seeing this right? That is valid, and we need to be doing that for the love of one another again. But when it comes to things that are not sin, when it comes to uh, ideologies and understanding Scripture and how to apply them in situational ethics, we need to be very, very careful. Accept those who see things differently than us. Trusting their motives are to honor the God that we both serve. I mean, that's a, that's a, a tough thing to do, but so important if we are to keep unity in the body of Christ. That's what Paul's calling for here chapter 15 to close this section verses 1 and 2 and you'll see as we come to verse 7 just like in the love one another passage he closes out by coming back and closing the bracket by repeating the theme verse 1 though first now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification to his growth to his maturity verse 5 Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Notice he brings it right back to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. The standard is how Christ accepted us. Us. It's the mercies of God poured out upon us. How can I accept people when we think so differently? Well, guess what? God accepted us in Christ Jesus. And he accepted a whole lot more than we're accepting horizontally at any moment. Now, you'll also notice in verse 1 there that the onus is on the mature. It says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength. This is a burden for those who are mature in the faith. Not only do they see more reasons to perhaps cause division, they see more that's wrong, they see more um, ways that we can diverge from one another, but they are to shoulder the weakness of those who are behind them in the faith. That's a high call to those. We need to ask the Lord to give us strength to do just that. That We are to be suffering with the immature as mature people, sacrificing ourselves for their sake, that they may not stumble in their faith, but for edification, that they may grow up. We have so many opportunities to show this fruit today, this, shoot, this fruit to, to accept one another. You know, I could illustrate this just by simply asking questions. What do you think about masks? Any diverse opinions on masks in the church? What about, what about lockdowns or politics in general? Government overreach, is that a thing? What should we do about vaccines, church? Do we have uniform opinion on what we should do about vaccines? What about how the church responds to all that's going on in our world right now? Do we have any diversity of opinion on how that happens? Of course we do. A ton of diversity of opinion. 
But in most cases, we're not dealing with sin in that diversity of opinion. We need to be very careful here. And this is where this fruit of accepting one another comes into play. And we know that there are always, not just in the year 2020, there are always potential reasons for division in the church. And the enemy, I'll be honest, I think has been working overtime this past year to exploit and exacerbate cracks that have developed. But the plaster that fills those cracks is the fruit of accepting one another. So we slaver on those cracks when they, when they start to show up. No, I'm going to accept one another. We have a difference of opinion on how to handle this. What should we be thinking about this? But we know that there's different maturity in the church. And knowing that, I'm going to accept my brother or sister in Christ. And this is especially the call for those who are mature in the faith. We are to shoulder the burden for the immature. Watching our tongues and tempers and and that we may grow as the weak may grow, and that we may have unity as a whole. Now, coming back to the original question that we began our time together with this morning. How do we become family from afar? You know, how do we be a church when we are scattered, when we are separate? Well, as we saw today in, in the book of Romans, we first need to recognize that our assignments, they don't change. That they remain the same no matter the circumstances. That we are to be a church that serves one another using the gifts that God has given us to build up the body of Christ. We are to do that. We are to be a church that loves one another, laying down all that we are, all our personal preferences, all our personal time, energy, money, for the whole, so we can build one another up. We are to love one another. And we are to accept one another, recognizing the variety of maturity levels in the church and, and helping the weak get stronger. Those assignments, that fruit, needs to be in existence in the church, whether we're scattered or together. Those are assignments that transcend all that's going on in our world today. And as we think about that, a church family that grows in its ability to serve one another, and to love one another, and to accept one another, immediately we think, man, that's the type of church I want to be part of. That's the type of family I want to be part of, a family like that. That's the type of family I want to invite other people to experience. Something that as they grow in, in fruit like that, the rest of the world knows nothing of something like that. And we can offer it here as we grow to represent those characteristics by God's power. But again, we must not forget that all of those fruit are not done in and of themselves. We don't just decide we're going to love one another. They come off of a very specific root. They have to come off of that very specific root. That we as a whole will only be able to serve, love, and accept one another to the extent that we as individuals are offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. It's the only way we'll be able to do it. It's the only way we'll be able to do it. That we have to actually, as individual people, tend the root, that root of offering our bodies before we can see the fruit develop in our church life. If we want to be a church that loves one another and serves one another and accepts one another, we have to be a church filled with people who understand the mercies of God that he has poured out upon us and give our lives back to him as individuals. That's the root that produces the fruit. And so it really comes back to, again, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And how do we tend that root? How do we make it stronger in our lives, that it's stronger in my life, stronger in your life? Well, we must remember the mercies of God in our own lives. You know, we have to know it. We've got to meditate on it. We've got to share it, talk about it, dream about it. You know, the more we let our minds marinate in the realities of God's graciousness, the more we will offer ourselves back to him. The more we understand what he's done, the less resistance in my heart will be to give myself back to the Lord. And the more we want to grow as a church into the type of family we want to be. And more importantly, the type of family that God wants us to be. 
As you go back through Romans again, Romans 1 through 11 is a treasure trove of these mercies of God. But perhaps the most potent chapter of the entire thing is chapter 8. And if I was to read through chapter 8 right now, even if you're unfamiliar with the book of Romans, I bet you you would hear verses or phrases that you've heard before that sound familiar. It's so popular. It talks about the deliverance from bondage that God provided for us in Christ, the, the victory we have in Christ. It is packed with the mercies of God. And so how do we tend this root in our lives this week? Well, I want to challenge you this week to spend some time in Romans chapter 8, reflecting on the mercies of God. And for you, this could mean reading it once every day. This could mean reading it once throughout the week in just a few verses at a time, but slowly chewing on all of these truths that are packed into this chapter. Remember, therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of the mercies of God, well, here are some. It's not exhaustive, and that's the incredible thing. As you read through chapter 8, apply them to yourself. Know that this is true about you if you are a Christian. Go through that chapter slowly, tend that root, marinate, let your mind marinate on these things, that this is what the Lord has done for me, is doing for me, and will do for me in the, in the future. And he's promised it. And let that be the motivation for you to offer your body to the Lord, a holy and living sacrifice. Lord, if you've done all of this for me, I mean, how could I not give you all that I am back? And then as you go through this week and you tend to the root in your life and you you go through Romans 8 and you, you worship the Lord in all he's done for you as revealed in that short chapter, then I challenge you to turn and pick one of the fruit we talked about this week. Pick one of them. To serve, to love, to accept. You say, Lord, I want to do one of these this week. Based upon what you've done for me, I want to do one of these fruit. I want to show one of these fruit, even just this week. Do you feel the Lord maybe calling you to serve in the church? Maybe you're not doing that, or maybe you're not sure that where you're serving is the right place. If so, ask yourself, where is the need in the church that I can meet by stepping out in faith? And and read Romans 8 again, and, and then dive right in in confidence because of all that Christ has done for you. Show that fruit and serve one another. Or maybe you're being called to love. Maybe you're being called to love in a way that's hard. You're being called to love someone that's unlovely or in a situation that's unlovely. Well, again, read Romans 8 and and bite down on your pride and lay yourself before someone else else to lift, lift them back up. Love one another. Bear that fruit. Or maybe you're being called to accept someone who's thinking differently than you. The Lord knows we have lots of those right now. You know, it's irritating when someone thinks different from you, especially when you're pretty sure that they're more immature and not thinking clearly. It's a hard thing to accept, but honestly, this is where, again, we go back to Romans 8, and we see all that the Lord has accepted in me, the difference between me and the Lord and what he's accepted in Romans 8. How can I withhold acceptance from a brother and sister in Christ? There is nothing that divides us horizontally that holds a candle to what had divided us vertically before a holy God that was forgiven. So maybe the Lord's calling you to accept someone else. Review Romans chapter 8, and take steps toward accepting one another. And brothers and sisters, we need to tend this root in our lives. We need to tend it. Look to the mercies of God that he has lavished upon us. And he does. He lavishes them upon us. And give our whole lives to him, being set apart from the world and and working toward godliness. And church, even though we are apart right now, when inevitably we come back together as a body of Christ, If right now we as individuals are obsessing over the mercies of God in our lives, are learning them anew, are cherishing them, 
are celebrating them, are worshiping God for all he's done, is doing, and will do in our lives. As we do that as individuals, and as we mature in our ability to lay our lives before the Lord because of all he's done, saying everything, Lord, that dark corner of my life that I didn't want to give you before, now is the time. You've got it now. You've got it. As we learn to do that and give ourselves back to the Lord and, and move away from worldliness and toward godliness, as each of us do that, inevitably, we as a church will produce these fruit that Romans is talking about. Inevitably, we will become a church that accepts one another, loves one another, and serves one another. And that's something we want to do. So even when we're apart, the assignment stays the same. Pursue the Lord, lay yourselves before him, celebrate the mercies that he's shown you by grace. Let's pray right now as we seek to do that. Heavenly Father, we have to first and foremost worship you for the grace that you have poured out upon us in your Son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We were far from you. We were enemies, yet Christ died for us. He died for us as we were reminded as we celebrated the Lord's Supper today, that he spilled his blood, that he gave his body for us, that we may be reconciled to a holy God even though we are far from that. And Father, you empower us. You've given us your spirit to seal us for the day of redemption. You've equipped us to walk this life. You've given us the armor of God to endure and to grow. And Father, you have guaranteed that we will be with you for eternity, that we will get glorified bodies, that you've, you've guaranteed us adoption, Father. All of these things and so much more you have given to us. How could we not give back to you what little we have? We ask that you would make Oak Ridge Bible Chapel a church filled with people who are consumed with your mercy and motivated by that grace. We give ourselves recklessly to you and to your service. And as we do that, Father, we pray that you grow this church into the family that you want us to be, a family that, that serves one another, that loves one another, and that accepts one another. And Father, we pray that you protect us as a church family. As the enemy seeks to divide us, seeks to scatter us in ways beyond just the physical, we pray that you guard us, that you protect us, Father, that you keep us unified for your name's sake. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.